Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, this is FEPS Talks, um, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. My name is Lance London, I'm the Secretary General of FEPS. And uh, I have um, a distinguished guest uh, today who is a leading expert on employment in the United Kingdom as well as uh, the rest of Europe, Stephen Bevan. Stephen, uh, we met on many occasions discussing the future of um, work. You used to lead uh, the Work Foundation for about 15 years, if I'm not mistaken, and now you are in Brighton in the Institute for Employment Studies. And I also uh, saw you have been acting in the last two years as an ambassador on work-related aspects of cancer. And I will also ask you about this, but why don't we start with the COVID impact on uh, working conditions? Because uh, when we discussed four, five, six, ten years ago, uh, the future of work, which became a trendy topic ten years mm. ago, nobody thought that such an epidemic would be the factor that eventually makes a big impact on the future of work. What are the main trends uh, or changes you would like to highlight in this field? Well, I suppose um, one of the big issues is that we've had um, over the last two years a big experiment on working from home and hybrid working. It's worth just remembering that not everybody has had the opportunity to work from home. People in frontline delivery roles in the health service and hospitality and Uh, retail, for example, haven't had that opportunity. But for many people in white-collar jobs, they almost overnight in March 2020 had to move very rapidly to work from home. And that's led to a number of challenges around not just technology, but also managing remote teams. Managers think about performance, uh, communication, um, productivity. There's some big open questions about the extent to which working from home has um, enhanced productivity or reduced it um, and the evidence on that is still um, coming through. Two years later um, we've been doing some research tracking people through surveys um, Mm -hmm. since 2020 looking at their attitudes to work, their health and well-being, uh, their preferences in terms of coming back to work. Probably about 80% of the UK workforce who've had the chance to work from home now say they don't want to go back Mm full-time into an office or a workplace. And I think what's happening is that a lot of employers are starting to say, which of our jobs are uh, location dependent and time dependent? Mm -hmm. So the two dimensions um, are making them think differently about which jobs need to be located in a place Mm -hmm. and where they can allow much more flexibility for people to work at home. And what we're finding is that most employers are now um, much more relaxed about hybrid working and flexible working these were the same employers two years ago who would say none of our jobs could be done from home. You know, we're very against the idea of allowing a large proportion of our workforce to work flexibly. Now they've shown to themselves that they can manage a flexible work- workforce working remotely and in different places. And so what's happened is that COVID and the lockdown has accelerated some trends and amplified some trends mm-hmm. that were happening in very small parts of the labour market mm-hmm. to the point where actually um, the genie is out of the bottle. And so I can't foresee that in the UK at least we're going to have a large scale return to, to offices and that for the most part people will go back into the office to do collaborative tasks or to meet their clients and customers. But for most tasks um, they can still be done productively at home and that's been the big shift I think. 
Did you find a big difference between white and blue color, if this distinction is still relevant? Uh, because the assumption, uh, you know, spring 2020 was that, uh, let's say, four out of five uh, white color jobs can be actually done remotely yep. or online. Yep. But uh, the proportion is probably exactly the opposite when it comes to blue color. Is this more or less the case? That's pretty much the case. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, where you can't, if you're working as a nurse, then you need to be in the hospital. Um, there are parts of the health service where we see much more remote work. So I'm doing a project at the moment looking at um, stress and burnout amongst general practitioners, so family mm. doctors. And there has been a shift um, towards more remote consultations. And so there are now more family doctors who are working at least part of their week at home doing telephone-based or uh, mm -hmm. video-based triage and treatment for people who don't have acute illnesses. So we have seen some shift there. But in the mainstream sectors such as hospitality, retail, uh, delivery, uh, logistics, you know, all those things, you know, the opportunity to work flexibly and so on is, is been far less common. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, your sample was from the UK? Yes. I suppose, do you assume that, let's say, the rest of Europe is also following the same trends? I think that's largely true in, in uh, Northern Europe. Um, mm -hmm. I think if you look at some of the evidence from the European Working Conditions Survey, and the other bespoke surveys that the European Foundation in Dublin has been doing, looking at people's experience of working COVID. I think that's been the general experience that, um, for the most part, technology um, has enabled uh, white-collar workers to have much more flexibility over when and where they mm -hmm. work. And I don't see that trend going back to how it was pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. We learned um, a new expression. I think that might have been also created in the pandemic period, the key workers. Mm. Uh, yeah, it, it was just a kind of late um, recognition that a lot of jobs, a lot of uh, segments in the labor market just so es essential. And, um, but it was also a recognition of very inferior working conditions yes. of many, many people whose work is otherwise essential. It's very interesting. It's quite ironic, isn't it? Because we, we don't include investment bankers in the definition of key workers, for example. Uh, people working in care homes, uh, people who are delivery drivers, people who work in supermarkets, you know, they were all categorized as key workers. And the thing that unifies them, apart from their limited access to flexible working is precarious work contracts, low pay, relatively low investment in skill formation and training and development and so on. And so I suppose it's made us think about which jobs we value most in society. And the irony is that the value we place in the UK, we used to stand outside our houses on Thursday nights clapping mm -hmm. uh, all the key workers to show our appreciation. But that appreciation never fed through into increases in their salaries or increases in the investment we gave them in terms of training them and making their jobs more professional. Um, and that's a deficit I think that we still yet to confront. Is this also a matter of the representation among the key workers then? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, very often they might be having a migration background or other types of uh, complications, individualization, marginalization, yeah. which makes it more difficult to organize and then push for uh, better uh, conditions, including pay? 
Um, I think it varies. I would say that in the UK, the hospitality sector is not well represented um, by trade unions and not covered by collective bargaining. Uh, retailing, particularly the logistics side of retailing, is quite heavily unionised in the UK. Social care is actually reasonably well unionised too, but um, it's a lot more precarious because we have, for example, in the UK, social care is dominated by private equity companies who are not particularly keen on trade unionisation. Mm. If you work in, a, in social care roles at local authorities, you're much more likely to be unionised. So I'd say it's quite patchy, but I don't perceive that there's been a very big, a, a strong level of representation of those groups by trade unions in mm. terms of improving terms and conditions. And most of those sectors have also been badly affected by, by the labour market impact of Brexit. You know, the hospitality sector in the UK lost 90,000 people mm. um, who were EU uh, citizens who've mo- moved back to their home countries. And that's certainly true in social care as well. One of the problems for those people, those of us who analyse the labour market in the UK is to try and disentangle the Brexit impact from the COVID impact you know, in terms of understanding quite what's going on. But there certainly have been big challenges in those sectors which have traditionally been low pay and low mm-hmm. skill. There was also a big debate about the shortage of lorry drivers mm. in the transport sector. Yeah. Uh, the same causes resulted in uh, yes. uh, this big shortage some time ago. I would assume that uh, from these kind of shocks, um, the labor market recovers very slowly. So the adjustment Mm. takes time. It It requires investment in training, people moving from one place to another to find employment, which again is uh, requiring time as well as investment. Regarding the corona effect, I would like to ask you about one more aspect, which is the psychosocial Mm. Um, one because this uh, you know in in these extraordinary circumstances this definitely raises questions what are the main issues you have been confronted with in this uh, regard Um, so we've been using surveys where we've been using the WHO 5 measure of mental well-being the World Health Organization measure which is a very simple measure it's the same one that the European Working Conditions Survey uses Um, And we've been collecting data on the mental health of people during the pandemic since uh, the beginning of the lockdown. And we won't surprise you to know that um, the mental health for most of the workforce, particularly those working from home, but not exclusively so, was very low. Mm -hmm. Um, It was lower for younger people. Young people working from home in shared accommodation, for example, um, was, was quite bad. Uh, and people with caring responsibilities. And in the UK, we had um, a period of homeschooling because schools were closed. So all that combination of factors had a, a damaging impact on people's well-being. But the picture wasn't uniform. Um, there are many people, I suppose I would count myself amongst them, who are older, a nice house, lots of, you know, my broadband was very good. Um, I've made the transition very easily. So more senior people in more professional white-collar jobs have actually found that working from home has been quite beneficial. Now we've been checking on how mental health has changed over time. In our last survey, which is going to be published in a couple of weeks' time, actually, we found quite a significant increase in mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not a, a, a clear-cut effect because, again, still relatively poor for young people, though it has improved. There are issues of isolation. Uh, there are issues of um, feeling disconnected from how decisions are made in your organisation. Some managers have been very good at managing people who are remotely, and we found a very clear correlation between how frequently you have contact with your manager and your mental well-being. And a good, empathetic manager with good emotional intelligence um, can make a big difference to your mental health when you're being managed remotely. And then when we've looked at the issue of productivity, we found that those people with the best mental health also 
um, have the best productivity. Really very strong correlation. In fact, the people with the lowest mental health have only half the productivity of those people with the best mental health. And so one of the things we're interested in is whether or not, you know, some politicians in the UK are very keen for people to get back into workplaces, partly because they're worried about the, the economic effect on city centres, for example, which is understandable. But they're making lots of assertions about productivity. I'm not sure they're borne out by the data. UK productivity at the national level has actually held up pretty well and has gone up in the most recent data during the lockdown. So I think the, the very strong relationship between mental well-being and productivity and a sense of autonomy and control in your job has combined together to uh, allow many people to be quite resilient during this time. Mm. But it's those people at the margins, the people most vulnerable, uh, we need to look out for a bit more. From a European Union perspective, I think um, this is indeed a very important point because the COVID crisis pushed the EU to move to the territory yeah. of health much uh, more forcefully mm. than in the past. In reality, the concept of the health union was um, already emerging before the corona, mm -hmm. but it really gained traction and political support in this uh, last two years. And indeed, this has also been the time when the EU came forward with a strategy to beat cancer. Mm. I would like to ask you about this because uh, I know you have been uh, working on the employment uh, aspects of uh, cancer. Um, what does that mean uh, uh, for you? How did you engage in this and what are the main issues um, you, you are working on? The thing that many people don't probably realise is that people born after 1960, they have a 50% chance of having cancer during their lifetime. And because of people retiring later, it means a high proportion of people of working age will have cancer at some point in their lives. Now, we've been very good from a, a medical point of view at uh, treating cancer, screening for it and so on. So more people survive cancer than before. But the, the evidence on people sustaining their position in the labour market is a lot less positive. Still, too many people leave the labour market prematurely and not enough people come back to work sustainably after having had cancer treatment. So this has been personal for me because um, I had cancer treatment, um, just, which finished just before the pandemic. So I was, I suppose, lucky that I wasn't caught up in the, all the problems with accessing healthcare. But of course, I've been very interested in what policies governments could be introducing to improve labour market participation for people living with cancer. And so we've been doing surveys with an organisation called Working With Cancer, for which I'm an ambassador. And what we found is that although people generally have positive experiences of return to work after cancer, that very few people are aware of their employment rights. And uh, so in the UK, uh, under the Equalities Act, um, you're automatically treated as someone who's disabled from, from a legal point, point of view. Um, and you have protect, your cancer is a protected characteristic under the Equalities legislation, which means you have the right to have phased return to work, um, reasonable adjustments and accommodations made for you. And our surveys found that fewer than, a, you know, about half of people realise that. And many people are finding their return to work has been um, very difficult because their employers see them as a burden, for example. Yeah. So I think there are issues around um, what needs to be done to improve labour market outcomes for people living with cancer. I mean, I would say that probably goes for most people living with long-term chronic and fluctuating health conditions. Uh, it's not just cancer, but you know there are conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis um, and so on that affect people of working age particularly. I think the, um, the beating cancer plan that the Commission has, um, has published um, has been widely welcomed. I think it's um, a good joined up uh, approach. Mm -hmm. 
One of the challenges that the Commission's already always had is it has limited competence on health policy. But I've always felt that looking at the employment outcomes for people with long-term conditions enables the Commission to say a lot more about um, inclusiveness, um, quality of life, um, productivity, uh, the social dimension of, of employment for people, particularly for people who are living with a health condition. One of the challenges that the EU has on cancer is there's such wide disparity in treatment, access mm. to treatment and outcomes. Mm. Um, I think in an ideal world, we'd like to see that those inequalities reducing and narrowing um, around the best quality treatment and best quality access to treatment. Mm. And I suppose the one unifying thing that I'd like to see more is that healthcare professionals, employers and policymakers should think about work as a clinical outcome of treatment for cancer. Mm. One of the, our survey findings is that very few people have meaningful conversations about employment with their doctors or their consultant and because they don't see it as part of their job. The doctors are interested in giving people the right treatment. But for over 50% of people living with cancer who come back to work, they're the main income earners in their household. And that means that work for them is incredibly important. But do you see the potential in the European Union to make a difference in what you mentioned, the kind of upward convergence? I think so. I think it can be as simple as sharing good practice, sharing protocols in terms of you know, return to work, vocational rehabilitation, understanding what sort of occupational health interventions help people to come back to work uh, quickly. I think regulation may play a part um, mm. in terms of giving people access to the right to return to work and the right to have, to have flexible working. But that's only one part of the jigsaw, I think. I think if we just go for the regulation, we're not going to win people's hearts and minds. I think we need employers to see that it's part of their duty of care to their employees to manage a return to work in a compassionate way. Mm. This um, progressive potential in the European Union uh, forces me to ask uh, the question about Brexit, obviously, <laughs> yes. uh, not least because um, I think pre-referendum but also afterwards there has been indeed a lot of fear also among trade unions that the exit from the EU in the field of uh, labour would result in the bonfire of uh, the regulations mm. and uh, what the European Union at least represented, some kind of minimum standards mm. and uh, foundations of the labour law uh, to stamp out unfair competition in the single market. Mm. So these aspects would be trashed. And then what? Mm. Do you see a change already? Or the UK is still more or less working aligned on European Union standards? I think there were a lot of fear about um, the erosion of, of labour standards in the UK. Um, I think some of that's gone away a little bit, I think because of the implications of the trade agreement. Um, I think it's going to be more difficult for the UK to diverge. Um, I think the appetite for going through all the regulations uh, line by line is, is diminished. There's still one or two regulations like the Working Time Directive and Information and Consultation Directive and so on that some people in the government uh, just don't like. But I, I think that the immediate danger of a, a big a wholesale reduction in labour standards and therefore a divergence mm -hmm. is, is diminished, mainly for trade reasons, not for ideological reasons. I think that we we're like to remain quite close to the EU regulations for the moment on, on labour law. Uh, this is very encouraging. Uh, it probably also applies to health and safety of the workplace uh, yeah. issues. On which, by the way, I always found it um, interesting, but also a little bit controversial, that there was a lot of, um, I should even say, propaganda against uh, mm -hmm. EU health and safety legislation. But when it came to the implementation, the UK record was quite good. Mm. 
Absolutely. And the UK was instrumental in, I think, a leading role in you know, much of the work that the European agency in Bilbao um, played. And um, a lot of the research base and evidence base um, that the, the Bilbao, Bilbao agency has, uh, has relied upon, particularly in terms of psychosocial health and musculoskeletal health, has been and driven substantially by the work of uh, EU researchers, uh, sorry, UK researchers and the health and safety executive. So, I mean, I think it's, it's a it's one of those classic examples of where, you know, when you think about what the, the UK has contributed to in terms of the, um, the debate and the leadership in the development of EU regulations over the last 20 or 30 years, you know, we've been right at the centre of things. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, my regrets is that, you know, I've had the privilege of working with some amazingly good researchers in the Netherlands and the Scandinavian countries and Spain and and so on you know the the debates and discussion and the richness of the evidence base that together we've been able to work on has been incredibly positive for everybody Um, I remember speaking to a a Spanish MEP a few years ago and Mm -hmm. he he said to me why should a Romanian electrician um, have to work under more hazardous conditions than someone in Belgium or, or Denmark. You know, there's, there's a sort of social solidarity in having uniformity of approaches to health and safety at work and the caricature of health and safety as being, you know, that bit of the regulation that tells people they can't do things um, or threatens to take them to court if they fall out, out of line. It's just so old-fashioned. And I think that what the EU's done, for example, on psychosocial health and musculoskeletal health has been incredibly positive. And, you know, I think it, it, it's a really good example of how um, new member states and member states with less well-developed policies can massively benefit from the, the very good practice of some of the better established larger northern economies. Um, thank you so much, uh, Stephen. I believe uh, this is a very good uh, conclusion where we can end our conversation, at least for today. I'm grateful for the insight which you shared mainly on the basis of UK uh, research, but with a lot of relevance for everybody in Europe who's interested in um, a a kind of post-corona world of uh, work. I also believe that Brexit should not be a barrier to future uh, cooperation, research uh, exchanges between UK researchers and uh, those on the continent uh, because we have a shared interest, shared values and uh, this indeed can drive a lot of constructive uh, cooperation also in uh, the future. I should wish you uh, continued good work in the uh, uh, Institute for Employment and Studies but also as an ambassador about working with cancer and this surely is an activity that will help many, many people who are struggling to find a solution to their individual situation. And um, we, we certainly will come back to these uh, questions um, in later work. Uh, thank you so much. And I also thank our listeners for being with us in this uh, conversation. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.